Well, uh, praise God. As the uh, children go out, uh, so thankful again for them. So thankful for the teachers that we have again in junior church. And so thankful for this chapter. It's an incredible chapter as you see all the drama that happens to be around this chapter. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? Because it starts out where we have a cleansing of the people of God, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira, and we see God again bring his judgment upon them. And right after that, we see all of these signs, all of these wonders that are done by the apostles. We see the preaching of the gospel, and we see so many coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so many that all of a sudden it takes the attention of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin have the apostles arrested, they're thrown in prison, and then about midnight, that happened to be in prison, uh, the angel of the Lord comes and lets them out, and they go in the temple, and they begin to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're arrested again, brought before the Sanhedrin, and their defense is none other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ crucified, the hope of glory, the hope of forgiveness of sins. And then we have this final paragraph, and this final paragraph basically wraps everything up. What are the Sanhedrin going to do with the apostles? And they're so enraged, they're so angry at them, that they want to put them to death. But one in their midst, Gamaliel, who happened to be an older man and also a trusted rabbi, intervenes at this time. You know, and he's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has no affinity with these people, and we'll see this as we go through the text in the coming weeks. But what, what he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if you oppose them, you might really exasperate the situation. In other words, you might heighten this idea of Christianity. Just let it run its course. Just let it die out. And so the council takes his advice. They beat the apostles and let them go. And the apostles go out amazingly praising God that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they start to go house to house. They start to go in these little house churches preaching the gospel, making known Jesus Christ. In other words, it wasn't dying out. But what it was was actually growing. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was growing. And it's amazing because when you look at it, this really speaks of the rising hostility, the rising antagonism of Christianity. And I think a lot of people many times wonder why we have these narrative passages. I mean, don't you wonder sometimes, you know, if you really want people to follow Jesus Christ, then you don't tell all the bad things about it, right? You don't report those things. You say things like, you know, if you come to Jesus, all of your difficulties will vanish away. If you come to Jesus, you will have a terrific life. If you come to Jesus, there's not going to be any trials. There's not going to be any tribulation. There's not going to be any opposition, but we find that in the opposite direction that happens to be again right here. And I think that's amazing because it really validates that these things really took place. Because again, if you were inventing a religion, you wouldn't put this in place. And it validates that these things actually took place. That these miracles, these signs, these wonders, the beginning of the Christianity really happened this way and really validates again that this is none other than the word of God. This is none other than inspired history and we can rely on it. But another reason again why these narrative passages are given is because it really doesn't just describe the world that the apostles live in, but it describes our world. You know, it's what we can expect because I think again when you look at the gospel, we would expect the opposite, wouldn't we? 
I mean, we have a good, ter- ter- terrific uh, message, right? We call it the gospel because what is it? It's good news. It's the greatest news. It's the news that, that a God of such holiness, a God of such grandeur, and a God of such love has reached down in his grace and he's given us what we do not deserve, which happens to be forgiveness of sins and an eternity with him. And all we have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus. All we have to do is have that repentant trust in him and him alone. You know, and we think that people would flock to this message and what we experience many times is opposition. And this is where we, get, we see that there's nothing wrong with the message. Let me say it again. There's nothing wrong with the message. You know, and this is why we have this narrative passage. So we know what to expect. It's going to touch some hearts. I mean, all of us that happen to be again here today, who happen to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are testimonies that it is going to touch some. But there's also going to be opposition. But I think these narrative passages are not only given to us that we would understand and validate the, the history-inspired uh, record that happens to be again right here, and not only describe the world that happens to be around us, but also describe unbelief in ourselves. Isn't it true? I can see a, unbelief in, in a lot of people a lot easier than I can see it myself. Can't you? You know, and many times we come up, come up I think, with complicated arguments of why we many times distrust or why we abandon certain portions of Scripture. We say things like this. It's not a lack of knowledge. You know, I know what the Word of God says. And what's the next word? eh? Someone tell me. But, right? The great cancellation. You know, we come up with some reason, some reason why it would be right in this situation not to follow God, not to believe in God, not to trust God. I think more honest, we should say, the, the re, I know what the Word of God says, but I have more wisdom. I have more knowledge. I have more righteousness than the God that happened to be of eternity. I think that's more accurate for us to say. You know, and what this passage, again, that we're going to look at, and we're going to look at in particular, uh, in particularly verse number 33, what it describes is, is unbelief. And I think, again, it's so important for us to to understand unbelief, because maybe you're struggling with some sort of sin in your life. Maybe you're living for Christ, and much of your life is right. Much of your life is living for his glory. But there happens to be certain areas, certain aspects of your life that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt are against his word. I want you to understand what unbelief looks like this morning. I want, and the reason why is because I really want you to fight that. Uh, maybe you happen to be, again, a... Uh, uh, Maybe you happen to be a young person, you know, and I find this so amazing. You know, and I'm not trying to pick on you young people, but you young people are just like the generation of the young people that have gone before you. And it's basically this. I have thought of things that nobody ever has thought about things. You know, I see things so clearly in light, again, of my great knowledge that my predecessors and my, the older people that happen to be in my life have never thought. And maybe you're thinking, again, of departing Christianity. Maybe you're thinking, you know, again, once I get out of the throes of people that happen to be again around you, or maybe you happen to be a believer or a professing believer, but many times you look at the constraints, many times you look at the vice, it seems like a vice in your life, and you just want to throw that off. And, and you want good things that happen to be in your life, and you don't understand what unbelief looks like. You know, I want to to describe that this morning. And maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never repented of your sins. 
Maybe you've never truly trusted him for glorious salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you've come up with so many reasons why you would never trust Jesus Christ. I want you to see through the lies. I want you to see beyond a shadow of a doubt that how you fight unbelief is radical. It's so radical because you know how you fight unbelief? It's by simple faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and his merits and his promises in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So I really want us to see this morning what unbelief again truly looks like. And I want us to see how it's described in verse number three, uh, 33 in our text. And this is what it says. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And it's amazing to look at unbelief because I think we come up with all sorts of excuses uh, why we don't believe. And like I say, I think a lot of times when we look at it in our own life, in the lives of others, we can see how unreasonable it is. But when we look at it in our own lives, many times we just do not see how unreasonable it is. And, and, and you know why? Because there's something inside of us, and it's called a conscience. And you know what the conscience does? It either accuses us or excuses us. But if we play around long enough with our conscience, it will do this. It will excuse our behavior. It will find some sort of rationale to say that this is right. But here's what happens. What happens so often when we have those times, we'll try to suppress it, we'll try to suppress it, we'll try to make argument after argument. But when we have those silent times that happen to be again in our life, when we're able to think through issues and who God is, and even the brevity of this life, we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that one day we are going to have to meet our maker. One day we're going to have to meet the creator of all the world that happens to be again around us. You know, and it's incredible because this is exactly what the Sanhedrin are doing. And it is an interesting verse because it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. And let me read some other translations that will help us truly understand uh, this verse. This is in KJV. It says, when they, when they had heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. The NIV reads it this way. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. And here's one more translation. And when they had heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. Now, this is the response of the religious leaders. And in all of those various different versions, we have this. And when they had heard this. And in the context, when it says, when they had heard this, what it was was the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is amazing. I always find the scripture so fascinating, so powerful, so illuminating. Because the scripture does something in our lives, in our hearts, that nothing else can do. I can give you a rationale. Maybe I can give you a rationale about extramarital sex. You know, and I can give, you know, about all the diseases, about, again, uh, things that will happen in your life. And it might not carry any weight. But when you open up the word of God and start to teach the word of God, it's amazing how it pries us open, and it shows us our guilt before a holy God like nothing else will do. It cuts through all of the lies. It cuts through all of the innuendos. It cuts through all of the excuses that we have, and it lays us bare. Isn't it amazing? You know, and we even have this in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Listen to what it says. For the word of God, right? It's like nothing else. What is it? It's living and active. 
What is it? Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And this is what it does. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. So it discerns the secret recesses of our inner person. It shows the horrors of sin and what we deserve deserve, and how repugnant our sin is before God. It's able to show us the need, again, of God's grace, the need of Jesus Christ that happens to begin in our life. And so in his glorious power, it's able to cut me open and expose me and leave me without any excuses in my life. So think about it. Here it is. The gospel's preached. The gospel's preached. The gospel's preached. The gospel's preached. It opens me up. So what is left? And here's what's left. My response. How am I going to be respond? How am I going to respond to being cut open? In fact, on the day of Pentecost, here it is. The same gospel that's been preached. I mean, this is an amazing thing. When you look, it's the same gospel, it's the same gospel, it's the same gospel that is being articulated. And listen to the response um, uh, uh, that, that, that there. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And notice that phrase there, they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were opened up, they were exposed. And they saw their guilt, and there was such a heaviness. They asked, What shall we do? Where shall we turn? We know what can be done as far as our state. Now, think of it, because here's the word of God, same gospel that's preached to the Sanhedrin. And listen to the language, and I'm going to read it in the KJV. When they heard that, in other words, they heard that same gospel, listen to what it says they were cut to the heart. And the reason why I emphasize that, that's the same expression that happens to be over in Acts chapter 2. But what's the difference? The difference is not that we're exposed. We can see the guilt, right? Right? You're the ones who murdered him, but God, through his mercy, forgiveness is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only difference is in the response. One says, what shall we do? And the other responds, You know, they want to kill them. Now, think about that. Why is that so important? Why is it so important to see in my own life? It's so important to see in my own life because the moment that I see that, I see that unbelief is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of my guilt before God. And the moment I see that, my conscience wants to rise to defense. We want to quiet the guilt that happens to be in our life. But the moment I see that, all of a sudden, all of the lies of why I reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is right here. You know, and I really want us to understand what unbelief isn't then. Because we'll try and make all sorts of excuses. You know, and I believe that we live in a very, um, an age where we find it really hard to argue. And what I mean by argue is argue in a, in a very, what I would say, um, a very Christian-like manner. 
you know, where all of a sudden we can stay with an argument, I'm taking this side on gun control, you're taking that side on gun control, and let's use the scriptures and let's argue back and forth very intellectually, very intelligently, the point. This is Christian. This is Christian. You know, this is why I think this is the will of God. This is why I think this is the will of God. And we've lost that ability. You know, and a lot of that, I think, is due to social media. It really is, because we have these little memes. Have you ever seen these memes? You know, and we say that, and now I know the truth. You know, there it is right there. The truth about this, the truth about that. And what we do is we doubt any experts that happen to be out there, whether they happen to be in the medical field, whether they happen to be political, whether they happen to be the leaders, even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know better. And guess why? Because I read that meme. You know, I read that paragraph, and now I know. And one of the most famous that happens to be over there, and you can see them through social media over and over and over again. In fact, somebody always sends me one uh, that's absolutely against Christianity, and these little sayings, little sayings, little sayings. And one of the most favorite, favorite one is, those who happen to live in a modern world, those who happen to live in a scientific era, don't believe in Christianity. You know, that was something in the bygone era, you know, that was superstitious, that was in an age, again, where they happen to really not have an intellect, not have an understanding that we have of the world that we live in. You know, and, and if you happen to be a modern person living in the modern world, you do not believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, have you ever heard that argument? Maybe you're making that argument in yourself. You know, and, and it happens to be out there. And let me tell you, if that argument was true, then when we looked outside of the modern era, what we would find is a whole bunch of superstition, a whole bunch, again, of this. And that's not what you find. When you look at the Sanhedrin that happened to be, again, right here, these are very intelligent men. And they're rejecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, they're responding in the same way. They're mocking, they're scorning, they're ridiculing Jesus Christ. They're saying things like this. A savior hanging on a tree? Get real. You know, who believes in that? You know, and let me just say this. There's limits to, mo- to the modern world. There's limits even to science. And, and as Christians, in the... In, living in this day and age. We're not against modernity. We really aren't. I love the modern aspects of life. You know, my wife and I just got a new stove, and it actually actually has Wi-Fi on it. Now, I don't know how it works, but I can press a button, and dinner's, dinner's ready by the time I get home. Now, how all that happens, I don't know, but I love the modern world. I love that I have almost my whole library on this little tablet. You know, I really have it on my phone if I want it. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. I love that I can contact anyone when I am away with, with my uh, cell phone. It's a wonderful thing, you know, mo- mo- uh, the modern world. But let me just say that there are limits to the modern world and there's limits to science, right? I don't believe in Jesus because I believe in science. There's limits. You know, science cannot explain. Think of what the scientific theory is, taking it in a laboratory and reproducing it over and 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 over again to show that it's true, to show that it's true, show show it's true. Well, how can science explain sin? How can it explain that there happened to be a superpower 
And this superpower will go against a weaker nation. Here's Russia. And they will go against the Ukraine and want to obliterate it and wipe it off the face of the earth. How can, how can explain that wickedness? How can explain the images that were flashed before us of Hamas and all the wickedness that they did to the innocent people that happened to begin of Israel? How can explain it? And it can't. It can't give you any rationale. Where did that evil, where did that wickedness come from? Where does sin come from in my own life? Where does sin come from in your own life? And let me tell you, say, we live, we're not against science. There's not one believer that is against science. We are not against modernity. I don't want to go live an Amish life. There's nothing holy about that. There really isn't. You know, but there's many. We have to realize the confines of all of that. And let me say, a lot of you might be going like this. Yay and amen, pastor. You preach that. We agree with it. But many in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, here it is, except modern definitions and modern excuses of the sin that happens to be in their own life. Isn't it true? You know, I talked to somebody about the sin that happened to be in their own life, and this is what they told me. Pastor, you have to realize this is not a spiritual issue. This is a physical issue in my life. And I have this disorder. I used to try that with my mom. I used to always try that. Mom, I have a messy room disorder. You're just going to have to live with it. Right? Right? right. And, and of course I jest. But it's amazing, isn't it? So what I say, and I want you to think of how we argue through this, because I'm not saying that I'm more prone to this sin or I'm more prone to this temptation. We realize that we're all made differently. And I accept that. You know, we're all made differently. And you might be tempted in this area a lot more than I'm tempted in this. And I might be tempted in this. I'm not saying anything about that. But when we say that the only answer happens to be some sort of medication or some sort of secular counseling that I need because of my condition, this is what we're saying, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ came to do is the second best news in my life and not the best news. And do we really want to go in that direction? Because what it is, when you look at the Sanhedrin that happened to be right here and their rejection of what the word of God is, what the gospel is, it's the same rejection. It is a distrust to say, yeah, I know what God says. Here comes that word again. But. And I wonder how many times we make excuses for the sin that happens to be in our life for the unbelief that happens to be in our life, the lies we tell ourselves in the human heart. You know, it is amazing because the argument many times also goes along with that, that Christianity is intellectually weak. Have you ever heard that? You know, here's the meme, right? right? Oh, you're a buffoon. You know, you're absolutely intellectually uh, weak. You know, you need all these crutches. You're so afraid of death. 
that you need all these cr crutches if anything happens in your life. I can remember one young man saying, I'd love to ask you questions, but I don't want to hurt your feelings and destroy your faith. And my answer to him was, bring it on, destroy my faith. And, and it's amazing because he, here it is, in the arrogance of unbelief, we think Christianity is a whole house of cards right there. And if I take one card and disprove it, the whole house comes tumbling down. And what Christians have is these blinders. They're so scared that somebody's going to come, somebody's going to ask them a question, so something's going to come in, and they're not going to be able to answer it. And think of it. Think of what we see in the text. Because you have to realize what the Sanhedrin are. They're Sadducees. And why is that so significant? Because they're a religious sect who don't believe in miracles. This is why they're so frustrated with the signs and wonders that happen to be going on. They deny much of the scripture that happens to be again written. They don't believe in the resurrection. Right? And here it is. And do they look at, look at these disciples. Look at, look at how superstitious they are. Look at how lost they are. They do not sit down and have an intellectual conversation. This is what the word of God really says. This is what's really right. But what's it read? And, and ask yourself, is this is intellectually? Here Peter presents the gospel. And it says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Right? They were caught in the heart. And caught in the heart. You know, it's not talking about something that's level-headed and rational as far as the emotions that come out. And remember why they have this, because listen to what Peter says. Peter says, starting in verse number 30, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. But this is what God did. God exalted him at the right hand as a leader and savior. And there's hope for you to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And what do they have? They have this strong emotional response. They get angry to the gospel. And I want you to ask, because maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you just hate being here this morning. Maybe you hate things about Jesus. Maybe you, you detest even coming to church, but somehow you had to come here this morning, and you hate it and hate it and hate it and hate it. And if your argument is so logical, let me ask the question, why are you so angry at Jesus? If Jesus really is a non-entity, if he did not rise from the grave, why are you so angry? Why is, so, why is there so much hatred, again, towards the Christian message, towards the crucified Messiah who died for your sins? You know, if he's a non-entity, he's a non-entity. You know, and people there, well, the reason why I'm an angry pastor is because Christianity has done so much harm to so many individuals. Do you ever read that? I've read memes like that. The greatest evil in our world is, and it begins with a C, Christianity. And I get it. There's lots of examples that happen to be getting out there. There's the Crusades. Uh, there's much slavery that many believers happen to uh, uh, be for. Uh, there's there's uh, examples, again, of that throughout history. 
There's examples of uh, those who happen to have high stature in Christianity. Many times their lives are exposed and it shows the hypocrisy that they've lived in. And because they've lived in such hypocrisy that has created so much pain, so much angst that happen to be in Christian people. And you might look at that and you might say, well, I, the reason why I'm rejecting Christianity, the reason why I hate it, the reason why I'm so angry is because of the harm that's done by those who happen to profess Jesus Christ, that's done by Christianity itself. And let me challenge you this morning. Because maybe what you're angry at is not Christianity. Maybe what you're angry at is the same thing I'm angry at, and that is a pseudo-Christianity, which really is not Christianity. Because one of the things that I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the greatest force for good in the last 2,000 years has been Christianity. And you can see that very early on. You know, the, uh, the Romans, um, what they would do many times is they would... Um, take these babies and they were unwanted and they would take them down to the garbage dump and they would throw them on to be burned. And what the Christians would do at the end of the day is they would go down to the garbage dump and they would collect these children and they would raise them as their own. They would give them Christian names. They would love and they would try to disciple them in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And most of these infants that were thrown away were the girls because girls had less value in the ancient world than boys did. You know, and they did that. You know, Christians, and this is a fact of history, Christians have built more hospitals and more er, uh, orphanages to serve the suffering than any other movement in human history. You know, and that's why many uh, uh, hospitals actually have Christian names attached to them. And the reason why is because they, they started these things. They led on human rights. When you look at human rights, there's a dignity, right? There's dignity. We're made in the image of God. The greatest propagators, the greatest fighters of human rights happen to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just history. You know, uh, uh, Christianity um, uh, uh, inspired skyrocketing literacy rates around the world. I mean, they wrote languages, right? They interpreted languages. They brought them in that they could reach the populace with the word of God. But here, here, here's all these people, and they're illiterate. They're illiterate, and they taught them. They educated, again, those things. They spearheaded so many of these. Christian, uh, Christianity has always been at the forefront of higher education. In fact, it brought many universities into existence, some of the most famous, St. Andrews and Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Princeton, and there's many more. In fact, the ones who started this scientific revolution were none other than believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because they believed God made this world for our benefit and to discover, again, all of these treatments for various different diseases in all of these various different ways that each one of us could be ministered and make our lives more easy. Christians organized resistant movements against the Nazis you know, during that. In fact, in one small town uh, in southern France uh, called La Chambon, they hid thousands of Jews from Hitler's SS. You know, at the own peril of their own life. Christians led the movement to abolish slavery, not only in America and the United Kingdom, but also in countries like India, Africa, and the Middle East and South America. 
And let me just say beyond a shadow of a doubt, we have our heads in the sand because here it is. We've got this little meme. We've got this little meme. This is the truth. You know, that somehow Christianity has not been a force for good. It's been the greatest force for good. And think of the people that happen to be around you this morning. Think of, again, if you have a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, just ask yourself this question. What would my life look like if I were not a believer? You know, here it is. Many of you would be drunkards. Many of you would be harlots. Many of you would be adulterers. Many of you would just absolutely waste your life on your own passions. But what has God done? He's made you trophies of his grace. And let me tell you, one of the things that should encourage our hearts so much is that Christianity has been such this force for good. And we shouldn't be surprised because it's the Spirit of God working through his people. But let me tell you, it should also, here it is, when we consider all that, cut through all the lies of why I reject Jesus Christ. Isn't it true? Does that mean my time's up? <laughs> Isn't it true? Cut through all the lies. You know, I'm just a modern person living in a modern world. I'm just an intellect. I just want what's right, and Christianity has been so evil and wicked. It cuts through the lies and exposes my heart that the reason why I do what I do is because there's certain things that I want above Jesus Christ, whether he is true or not. You know, it's like John chapter 3. John says it so clearly. And he says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, right? People love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, this is what happens, hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Because lest his works should be exposed. Now, if that doesn't describe our verse before us, I don't know what will. I, I shouldn't ask this question, so I'm not going to ask. I was going to ask the question, how many of you grew up in the 60s and the 70s? And if you grew up in the 60s and the 70s, you realize that the most popular um, uh, group uh, happened to be the Beatles, right? The, they had many anthems that happened to be again of that whole year, and one of the most popular songs that they penned was All You Need Is Love, right? And it became again a song of a generation, didn't it? You know, that if the world would just love, we would have this wonderful world, we'd have this wonderful existence, because all you really need is love. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, that is really bad theology. It really is. Because the problem is not that I do not love. The problem is what I love. Isn't it true? Because we just quoted this verse, and it says, men or people love the darkness rather than the light. That's the problem, isn't it? And the reason why somebody says, I'm not going to believe, I'm not going to trust, I'm not going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Be honest with yourself. It's because there is something in my life that I love more than Jesus Christ. 
I mean, isn't, isn't it amazing? I love coming in Sunday morning. I love sitting down here, and I wish we could have an hour song service uh, followed by an hour preaching, and I know I'm just wishing in thin air, but I wish we could do that. And the reason why is because hymns really express our hearts. And one of my favorite hymns, and I'm, I sh- and I'm not going to say I'm, it's always here, I'm always here, I'm always here, I'm always here because I fluctuate just like you. But it's this. And this is what God cuts me open. God shows me my sin. God shows me the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then all you need is love. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Isn't it true? God does such a work on our hearts. It said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than to have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus in houses and lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. You know, it goes on and talks about worldwide fame. It talks about, again, men's applause. And we look at that. And the real question for us this morning is what do we love? What do we desire? Who do we desire? And how does Jesus Christ confront what you most love in this world? It's easy to smear Christians. It's easy to smear Christianity. There's a thousand and one memes that happen to be out there and say, yeah, that's it, yeah, praise you, there it is. thousand and one memes. But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to our rejection of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's something going on in your conscience. And the gospel is not is telling you what you do not want to hear. And just because you reject the message doesn't mean... That isn't true. And here's the grace. Because maybe you've been there. Maybe you're thinking about walking away from Christianity. Maybe you're thinking about denying the faith. Maybe you're thinking about deconstruction. Maybe you're thinking that I will never, ever trust the Lord Jesus. And here's an amazing thing. When God cuts through all of these lies and you see your sin before holy God, you're in a place where you can see the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God can wonderfully change your heart so much if you trust in him that you can actually sing, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. And through his mercy, he's still changing hearts. Why would we want to be involved in anything else? but the making and maturing of disciples for the glory of God. Let's keep preaching this gospel. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we realize in this congregation this morning, there might be one, there might be two, there might be a half dozen or even a dozen individuals 
that are struggling with unbelief. Lord, that are telling lies to themselves. But why? There is no way that they can continue following the Lord Jesus Christ. Or why they could never follow the Lord. God, I ask as we look at the Sanhedrin, as we look at these intelligent, educated men, that we would see the face of unbelief, that we would cut through all of our lies, that we would see the sin that happened to be again in our hearts, and Lord, that we would come to see that it is before you for all of eternity. And we would see that there is a cleansing, there is a wiping out of that sin in one way, and that's true, the substitutionary death of Lord Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give those individuals the grace this morning to truly be cleansed, the grace this morning to truly believe, the grace this morning to truly place their faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. Lord, us who happen to be here, who happen to be believers, we realize that there's areas in our life that we struggle with unbelief. We look for modern answers to the sin problem rather than to the scriptures, which are absolutely sufficient for life and godliness. I ask, Lord, that you would help us in our unbelief in our pockets of distrust, that we would trust in Christ and him alone, that we would look to your sufficient word and seek to follow you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Just be with us as we continue now. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother.